Section six of chapter nineteen of a history of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter nineteen, section six. While the inquiry into the conduct of the war was pending, the Commons resumed the consideration of an important subject which had occupied much of their attention in the preceding year. The bill for the regulation of trials in cases of high treason was again brought in, but was strongly opposed by the official men, both Whigs and Tories. Summers, now Attorney-General, strongly recommended delay that the law as it stood was open to grave objections was not denied but it was contended that the proposed reform would at that moment produce more harm than good nobody would assert that under the existing government the lives of innocent subjects were in any danger nobody would deny that the government itself was in great danger. Was it the part of wise men to increase the perils of that which was already in serious peril for the purpose of giving new security to that which was already perfectly secure? Those who held this language were twitted with their inconsistency and asked why they had not ventured to oppose the bill in the preceding session. They answered very plausibly that the events which had taken place during the recess had taught an important lesson to all who were capable of learning. The country had been threatened at once with invasion and insurrection. No rational man doubted that many traitors had made preparations for joining the French, and had collected arms, ammunition, and horses for that purpose. Yet though there was abundant moral evidence against these enemies of their country, it had not been possible to find legal evidence against a single one of them. The law of treason might in theory be harsh, and had undoubtedly in times past been grossly abused, but a statesman who troubled himself less about theory than about practice, and less about times past than about the time present, would pronounce that law not too stringent but too lax, and would, while the Commonwealth remained in extreme jeopardy, refuse to consent to any further relaxation. In spite of all opposition, however, the principle of the bill was approved by 171 votes to one hundred and fifty-two, but in the committee it was moved and carried that the new rules of procedure should not come into operation till after the end of the war with France. When the report was brought up, the House divided on this amendment and ratified it by a hundred and forty-five votes to a hundred and twenty-five. The bill was consequently suffered to drop. Had it gone up to the peers, it would in all probability have been lost after causing another quarrel between the houses, for the peers were fully determined that no such bill should pass, unless it contained a clause altering the constitution of the Lord High Steward's Court, and a clause altering the constitution of the Lord High Steward's Court would have been less likely than ever to find favour with the Commons, for in the course of this session an event took place which proved that the great were only too well protected by the law as it stood, and which well deserves to be recorded as a striking illustration of the state of manners and morals in that age. Of all the actors who were then on the English stage, the most graceful was William Mountford. He had every physical qualification for his calling, a noble figure, a handsome face, 
a melodious voice. It was not easy to say whether he succeeded better in heroic or ludicrous parts. He was allowed to be both the best Alexander and the best Sir Courtly Nice that ever trod the boards. Queen Mary, whose knowledge was very superficial, but who had naturally a quick perception of what was excellent in art, admired him greatly. He was a dramatist as well as a player, and has left us one comedy which is not contemptible. The most popular actress of the time was Anne Bracegirdle. There were on the stage many women of more faultless beauty, but none whose features and deportment had such power to fascinate the senses and the hearts of men. The sight of her bright black eyes and of her rich brown cheek sufficed to put the most turbulent audience into good humour. It was said of her that in the crowded theatre she had as many lovers as she had male spectators. Yet no lover, however rich, however high in rank, had prevailed upon her to be his mistress. Those who are acquainted with the parts which she was in the habit of playing, and with the epilogues which it was her especial business to recite, will not easily give her credit for any extraordinary measure of virtue or of delicacy. She seems to have been a cold, vain, and interested coquette, who perfectly understood how much the influence of her charms was increased by the fame of a severity which cost her nothing, and who could venture to flirt with a succession of admirers in the just confidence that no flame which she might kindle in them would thaw her own ice. Among those who pursued her with an insane desire was a profligate captain in the army named Hill. With Hill was closely bound in a league of debauchery and violence Charles Lord Mohun, a young nobleman whose life was one long revel and brawl. Hill, finding that the beautiful brunette was invincible, took it into his head that he was rejected for a more favoured rival, and that this rival was the brilliant Mountford. The jealous lover swore over his wine at a tavern that he would stab the villain. And I, said Mohun, will stand by my friend. From the tavern the pair went, with some soldiers whose services Hill had secured, to Drury Lane where the lady resided. They lay some time in wait for her. As soon as she appeared in the street she was seized and hurried to a coach. She screamed for help, her mother clung round her, the whole neighbourhood rose, and she was rescued. Hill and Mohun went away vowing vengeance. They swaggered, sword in hand, during two hours about the streets near Mountford's dwelling. The watch requested them to put up their weapons, but when the young lord announced that he was a peer, and bade the constables touch him if they durst, they let him pass. So strong was privilege then, and so weak was law. Messengers were sent to warn Mountford of his danger, but unhappily they missed him. He came, a short altercation took place between him and Mohun, and while they were wrangling, Hill ran the unfortunate actor through the body and fled. The grand jury of Middlesex, consisting of gentlemen of note, found a bill of murder against Hill and Mohun. Hill escaped, Mohun was taken. His mother threw herself at William's feet, but in vain. It was a cruel act, said the king, I shall leave it to the law. The trial came on in the court of the Lord High Steward, and as Parliament happened to be sitting, the culprit had the advantage of being judged by the whole body of the peerage. There was then no lawyer in the upper house. It therefore became necessary 
for the first time since Buckhurst had pronounced sentence on Essex and Southampton, that a peer who had never made jurisprudence his special study should preside over that grave tribunal. Carmarthen, who, as Lord President, took precedence of all the nobility, was appointed Lord High Steward. A full report of the proceedings has come down to us. No person who carefully examines that report and attends to the opinion unanimously given by the judges in answer to a question which Nottingham drew up, and in which the facts brought out by the evidence are stated with perfect fairness, can doubt that the crime of murder was fully brought home to the prisoner. Such was the opinion of the king who was present during the trial, and such was the almost unanimous opinion of the public. Had the issue been tried by Holt and twelve plain men at the Old Bailey, there can be no doubt that a verdict of guilty would have been returned. The peers, however, by sixty-nine votes to fourteen, acquitted their accused brother. One great nobleman was so brutal and stupid as to say, after all, the fellow was but a player, and players are rogues. All the newsletters, all the coffee-house orators, complained that the blood of the poor was shed with impunity by the great. Wits remarked that the only fair thing about the trial was the show of ladies in the galleries, Letters and journals are still extant in which men of all shades of opinion, Whigs, Tories, non-jurors, condemn the partiality of the tribunal. It was not to be expected that while the memory of this scandal was fresh in the public mind, the Commons would be induced to give any new advantage to accused peers. The Commons had, in the meantime, resumed the consideration of another highly important matter, the state of the trade with India. They had, toward the close of the preceding session, requested the King to dissolve the old company and to constitute a new company on such terms as he should think fit, and he had promised to take their request into his serious consideration. He now sent a message to inform them that it was out of his power to do what they had asked. He had referred the charter of the old company to the judges, and the judges had pronounced that, under the provisions of that charter, the old company could not be dissolved without three years' notice, and must retain during those three years the exclusive privilege of trading to the East Indies. He added that, being sincerely desirous to gratify the commons, and finding himself unable to do so in the way which they had pointed out, he had tried to prevail on the old company to agree to a compromise, but that body stood obstinately on its extreme rights, and his endeavours had been frustrated. This message reopened the whole question. The two factions which divided the city were instantly on the alert. The debates in the house were long and warm. Petitions against the old company were laid on the table. Satirical handbills against the new company were distributed in the lobby. At length, after much discussion, it was resolved to present an address requesting the king to give the notice which the judges had pronounced necessary. He promised to bear the subject in mind, and to do his best to promote the welfare of the kingdom. With this answer the house was satisfied, and the subject was not again mentioned till the next session. The debates of the Commons on the conduct of the war, on the law of treason and on the trade with India, occupied much time, and produced no important result. But meanwhile, real business was doing in the Committee of Supply and the Committee of Ways and Means. In the Committee of Supply, the estimates passed rapidly. A few members declared it to be their opinion 
that England ought to withdraw her troops from the continent, to carry on the war with vigour by sea, and to keep up only such an army as might be sufficient to repel any invader who might elude the vigilance of her fleets. But this doctrine, which speedily became and long continued to be the badge of one of the great parties in the state, was as yet professed only by a small minority which did not venture to call for a division. In the Committee of Ways and Means it was determined that a great part of the charge of the year should be defrayed by means of an impost, which, though old in substance, was new in form. From a very early period to the middle of the seventeenth century, our parliaments had provided for the extraordinary necessities of the government chiefly by granting subsidies. A subsidy was raised by an impost on the people of the realm in respect of their reputed estates. Landed property was the chief subject of taxation, and was assessed nominally at four shillings in the pound. But the assessment was made in such a way that it not only did not rise in proportion to the rise in the value of the land, or to the fall in the value of the precious metals, but went on constantly sinking, till at length the rate was in truth less than twopence in the pound. In the time of Charles I, a real tax of four shillings in the pound on land would probably have yielded nearly a million and a half, but a subsidy amounted to little more than fifty thousand pounds. The financiers of the Long Parliament devised a more efficient mode of taxing estates. The sum which was to be raised was fixed. It was then distributed among the counties in proportion to their supposed wealth, and was levied within each county by a rate. The revenue derived from these assessments in the time of the Commonwealth varied from £35,000 to £120,000 a month. After the Restoration, the legislature seemed for a time inclined to revert, in finance as in other things, to the ancient practice. Subsidies were once or twice granted to Charles the Second, but it soon appeared that the old system was much less convenient than the new system. The Cavaliers condescended to take a lesson in the art of taxation from the Roundheads, and during the interval between the Restoration and the Revolution, extraordinary calls were occasionally met by assessments resembling the assessments of the Commonwealth. After the Revolution, the war with France made it necessary to have recourse annually to this abundant source of revenue. In 1689, in 1690, and in 1691, great sums had been raised on the land. At length, in 1692, it was determined to draw supplies from real property more largely than ever. The Commons resolved that a new and more accurate valuation of estates should be made over the whole realm, and that on the rental thus ascertained a pound rate should be paid to the government. Such was the origin of the existing land tax. The valuation made in 1692 has remained unaltered down to our own time. According to that valuation, one shilling in the pound on the rental of the kingdom amounted, in round numbers, to half a million. During a hundred and six years, a land tax bill was annually presented to Parliament, and was annually passed, though not always without murmurs from the country gentlemen. The rate was, in time of war, four shillings in the pound. In time of peace, before the reign of George the Third, only two or three shillings were usually granted, 
and during a short part of the prudent and gentle administration of Walpole, the government asked for only one shilling. But after the disastrous year in which England drew the sword against her American colonies, the rate was never less than four shillings. At length, in the year 1798, the Parliament relieved itself from the trouble of passing a new act every spring. The land tax, at four shillings in the pound, was made permanent, and those who were subject to it were permitted to redeem it. A great part has been redeemed, and at present little more than a fiftieth of the ordinary revenue required in time of peace is raised by that impost which was once regarded as the most productive of all the revenues of state. The land tax was fixed for the year 1693 at four shillings in the pound, and consequently brought about two millions into the treasury. That sum, small as it may seem to a generation which has expended a hundred and twenty millions in twelve months, was such as had never before been raised here in one year by direct taxation. It seemed immense, both to Englishmen and to foreigners. Lewis, who found it almost impossible to wring by cruel exactions from the beggared peasantry of France, the means of supporting the greatest army and the most gorgeous court that had existed in Europe since the downfall of the Roman Empire, broke out, it is said, into an exclamation of angry surprise when he learned that the commons of England had, from dread and hatred of his power, unanimously determined to lay on themselves in a year of scarcity and of commercial embarrassment a burden such as neither they nor their fathers had ever before borne. My little cousin of Orange, he said, seems to be firm in the saddle. He afterwards added, no matter, the last piece of gold will win. This, however, was a consideration from which, if he had been well informed touching the resources of England, he would not have derived much comfort. Kensington was certainly a mere hovel when compared to his superb Versailles. The display of jewels, plumes, and lace, led horses and gilded coaches which daily surrounded him, far outshone the splendour which even on great public occasions our princes were in the habit of displaying. But the condition of the majority of the people of England was, beyond all doubt, such as the majority of the people of France might well have envied. In truth, what was called severe distress here would have been called unexampled prosperity there. The land tax was not imposed without a quarrel between the houses. The commons appointed commissioners to make the assessment. These commissioners were the principal gentlemen of every county, and were named in the bill. The lords thought this arrangement inconsistent with the dignity of the peerage. They therefore inserted a clause providing that their estates should be valued by twenty of their own order. The lower house indignantly rejected this amendment, and demanded an instant conference. After some delay which increased the ill-humour of the commons, the conference took place. The bill was returned to the peers with a very concise and haughty intimation that they must not presume to alter laws relating to money. A strong party among the lords was obstinate. Mulgrave spoke at great length against the pretensions of the plebeians. He told his brethren that if they gave way they would abdicate that authority which had belonged to the baronage of England 
ever since the foundation of the monarchy, and that they would have nothing left of their old greatness except their coronets and ermines. Burnet says that this speech was the finest that he ever heard in Parliament, and Burnet was undoubtedly a good judge of speaking, and was neither partial to Mulgrave nor zealous for the privileges of the aristocracy. The orator, however, though he charmed his hearers, did not succeed in convincing them. Most of them shrank from a conflict in which they would have had against them the commons united as one man, and the king, who in case of necessity would undoubtedly have created fifty peers, rather than have suffered the land tax bill to be lost. Two strong protests, however, signed, the first by twenty-seven, the second by twenty-one dissentients, showed how obstinately many nobles were prepared to contend at all hazards for the dignity of their caste. Another conference was held, and Rochester announced that the lords, for the sake of public interest, waived what they must nevertheless assert to be their clear right, and would not insist on their amendment. The bill passed, and was followed by bills for laying additional duties on imports, and for taxing the dividends of joint stock companies. Still, however, the estimated revenue was not equal to the estimated expenditure. The year, 1692, had bequeathed a large deficit to the year 1693, and it seemed probable that the charge for 1693 would exceed by about five hundred thousand pounds the charge for 1692. More than two millions had been voted for the army and ordnance, near two millions for the navy. Only eight years before, fourteen hundred thousand pounds had defrayed the whole annual charge of government. More than four times that sum was now required. Taxation, both direct and indirect, had been carried to an unprecedented point, yet the income of the state still fell short of the outlay by about a million. It was necessary to devise something. Something was devised, something of which the effects are felt to this day in every part of the globe. There was indeed nothing strange or mysterious in the expedient to which the government had recourse. It was an expedient familiar during two centuries to the financiers of the continent, and they could hardly fail to occur to any English statesman who compared the void in the exchequer with the overflow in the money market. During the interval between the Restoration and the Revolution, the riches of the nation had been rapidly increasing. Thousands of busy men found every Christmas that after the expenses of the year's housekeeping had been defrayed out of the year's income, a surplus remained, and how that surplus was to be employed was a question of some difficulty. In our time, to invest such a surplus at something more than three per cent, on the best security that has ever been known in the world, is the work of a few minutes. But in the seventeenth century, a lawyer, a physician, a retired merchant, who had saved some thousands, and who wished to place them safely and profitably, was often greatly embarrassed. Three generations earlier, a man who had accumulated wealth in a profession generally purchased real property, or lent his savings on mortgage. But the number of acres in the kingdom had remained the same, and the value of those acres, though it had greatly increased, had by no means increased so fast as the quantity of capital which was seeking for employment. Many, too, wished to put their money where they could find it 
at an hour's notice, and looked about for some species of property which could be more readily transferred than a house or a field. A capitalist might lend on bottomry or on personal security, but if he did so, he ran a great risk of losing interest and principal. There were a few joint stock companies, among which the East India Company held the foremost place, but the demand for the stock of such companies was far greater than the supply. Indeed, the cry for a new East India Company was chiefly raised by persons who had found difficulty in placing their savings at interest on good security. So great was that difficulty that the practice of hoarding was common. We are told that the father of Pope the poet, who retired from business in the city about the time of the revolution, carried to a retreat in the country a strong box containing near twenty thousand pounds, and took out from time to time what was required for household expenses, and it is highly probable that this was not a solitary case. At present, the quantity of coin which is hoarded by private persons is so small that it would, if brought forth, make no perceptible addition to the circulation. But in the earlier part of the reign of William the Third, all the greatest writers on currency were of opinion that a very considerable mass of gold and silver was hidden in secret drawers and behind wainscots. The natural effect of this state of things was that a crowd of projectors, ingenious and absurd, honest and knavish, employed themselves in devising new schemes for the employment of redundant capital. It was about the year 1688 that the word stock-jobber was first heard in London. In the short space of four years, a crowd of companies, every one of which confidently held out to subscribers the hope of immense gains, sprang into existence. The insurance company, the paper company, the loot string company, the pearl fishery company, the glass bottle company, the alum company, the blithe coal company, the sword blade company. There was a tapestry company which would soon furnish pretty hangings for all the parlours of the middle class and for all the bedchambers of the higher. There was a copper company which proposed to explore the mines of England and held out a hope that they would prove not less valuable than those of Potosi. There was a diving company which undertook to bring up precious effects from shipwrecked vessels, and which announced that it had laid in a stock of wonderful machines resembling complete suits of armour. In front of the helmet was a huge glass eye, like that of a cyclop, and out of the crest went a pipe through which the air was to be admitted. The whole process was exhibited on the Thames. Fine gentlemen and fine ladies were invited to the show, were hospitably regaled, and were delighted by seeing the divers in their panoply descend into the river and return laden with old iron and ship's tackle. There was a Greenland fishing company which could not fail to drive the Dutch whalers and herring buses out of the northern ocean. There was a tanning company which promised to furnish leather superior to the best that was brought from Turkey or Russia. There was a society which undertook the office of giving gentlemen a liberal education on low terms, and which assumed the sounding name of the Royal Academy's company. In a pompous advertisement, it was announced that the directors of the Royal Academy's Company had engaged the best masters in every branch of knowledge, and were about to issue 
twenty thousand tickets at twenty shillings each there was to be a lottery two thousand prizes were to be drawn and the fortunate holders of the prizes were to be taught at the charge of the company latin greek hebrew french spanish conic sections trigonometry heraldry japanning fortification bookkeeping and the art of playing the theorbo some of these companies took large mansions and printed their advertisements in gilded letters others less ostentatious were content with ink and met at coffee-houses in the neighbourhood of the royal exchange jonathan's and garraway's were in a constant ferment with brokers buyers sellers meetings of directors meetings of proprietors time bargains soon came into fashion extensive combinations were formed and monstrous fables were circulated for the purpose of raising or depressing the price of shares our country witnessed for the first time those phenomena with which a long experience has made us familiar a mania of which the symptoms were essentially the same as those with the mania of seventeen twenty of the mania of eighteen twenty five of the mania of eighteen forty five seized the public mind an impatience to be rich a contempt for those slow but sure gains which are the proper reward of industry patience and thrift spread through society the spirit of the cogging dicers of whitefriars took possession of the grave senators of the city wardens of trades deputies aldermen it was much easier and more lucrative to put forth a lying prospectus announcing a new stock to persuade ignorant people that the dividends could not fall short of twenty per cent and to part with five thousand pounds of this imaginary wealth for ten thousand solid guineas than to load a ship with a well-chosen cargo for virginia or the levant every day some new bubble was puffed into existence rose buoyant shone bright burst and was forgotten the new form which covetousness had taken furnished the comic poets and satirists with an excellent subject nor was that subject the less welcome to them because some of the most unscrupulous and most successful of the new race of gamesters were men in sad-coloured clothes and lank hair men who called cards the devil's books men who thought it a sin and a scandal to win or lose tuppence over a backgammon board it was in the last drama of shadwell that the hypocrisy and knavery of these speculators was for the first time exposed to public ridicule he died in november sixteen ninety two just before his stock jobbers came on the stage and the epilogue was spoken by an actor dressed in deep mourning the best scene is that in which four or five stern nonconformists clad in the full puritan costume after discussing the prospects of the mousetrap company and the flea-killing company examine the question whether the godly may lawfully hold stock in a company for bringing over chinese rope dancers considerable men have shares says one austere person in cropped hair and bands but verily i question whether it be lawful or not these doubts are removed by a stout old roundhead colonel who had fought at marston moor and who reminds his weaker brother that the saints need not themselves see the rope dancing and that 
In all probability there will be no rope-dancing to see. The thing, he says, is like to take the shares will sell well, and then we shall not care whether the dancers come over or no. It is important to observe that this scene was exhibited and applauded before one farthing of the national debt had been contracted. So ill-informed were the numerous writers who, at a later period, ascribed to the national debt the existence of stock-jobbing and of all the immoralities connected with stock-jobbing. The truth is that society had, in the natural course of its growth, reached a point at which it was inevitable that there should be stock-jobbing, whether there were a national debt or not, and inevitable also that, if there were a long and costly war, there should be a national debt. How indeed was it possible that a debt should not have been contracted when one party was impelled by the strongest motives to borrow and another was impelled by equally strong motives to lend a moment had arrived at which the government found it impossible without exciting the most formidable discontents to raise by taxation the supplies necessary to defend the liberty and independence of the nation and at that very moment numerous capitalists were looking around them in vain for some good mode of investing their savings, and for want of such a mode were keeping their wealth locked up, or were lavishing it on absurd projects. Riches sufficient to equip a navy which would sweep the German Ocean and the Atlantic of French privateers riches sufficient to maintain an army which might retake Namur and avenge the disaster of Steinkirk, were lying idle or were passing away from the owners into the hands of sharpers. A statesman might well think that some part of the wealth which was daily buried or squandered might, with advantage to the proprietor, to the taxpayer and to the state, be attracted into the treasury. Why meet the extraordinary charge of a year of war by seizing the chairs, the tables, the beds of hard-working families, by compelling one country gentleman to cut down his trees before they were ready for the axe, another to let the cottages on his land fall to ruin, a third to take away his hopeful son from the university, when Change Alley was swarming with people who did not know what to do with their money, and who were pressing everybody to borrow it. It was often asserted, at a later period by Tories, who hated the national debt most of all things, and who hated Burnet most of all men, that Burnet was the person who first advised the government to contract a national debt but this assertion is proved by no trustworthy evidence, and seems to be disproved by the bishop's silence. Of all men he was the least likely to conceal the fact that an important fiscal revolution had been his work. Nor was the Board of Treasury at that time one which much needed, or was likely much to regard, the counsels of a divine. At that board sat Godolphin, the most prudent and experienced, and Montague, the most daring and inventive of financiers. Neither of these eminent men could be ignorant that it had long been the practice of the neighbouring states to spread over many years of peace the excessive taxation which was made necessary by one year of war. In Italy this practice had existed through many generations. France had, during the war which began in 1672 and ended in 1679, borrowed not less than thirty millions of our money. Sir William Temple, in his interesting work on the Batavian Federation, 
had told his countrymen that when he was ambassador at the hague the single province of holland then ruled by the frugal and prudent de witt owed about five millions sterling for which interest at four per cent was always ready to the day and that when any part of the principal was paid off the public creditor received his money with tears well knowing that he could find no other investment equally secure the wonder is not that england should have at length imitated the example both of her enemies and her allies but that the fourth year of her arduous and exhausting struggle against lewis should have been drawing to a close before she resorted to an expedient so obvious on the fifteenth of december sixteen ninety two the house of commons resolved itself into a committee of ways and means somers took the chair montague proposed to raise a million by way of loan the proposition was approved and it was ordered that a bill should be brought in the details of the scheme were much discussed and modified but the principle appears to have been popular with all parties the moneyed men were glad to have a good opportunity of investing what they had hoarded the landed men hard pressed by the load of taxation were ready to consent to anything for the sake of present ease no member ventured to divide the house on the twentieth of january the bill was read a third time carried up to the lords by summers and passed by them without any amendment by this memorable law new duties were imposed on beer and other liquors these duties were to be kept in the exchequer separate from all other receipts and were to form a fund on the credit of which a million was to be raised by life annuities as the annuitants dropped off their annuities were to be divided among the survivors till the number of survivors was reduced to seven after that time whatever fell in was to go to the public it was therefore certain that the eighteenth century would be far advanced before the debt would be finally extinguished the rate of interest was to be ten per cent till the year seventeen hundred and after that year seven per cent the advantages offered to the public creditor by this scheme may seem great but were not more than sufficient to compensate him for the risk which he ran it was not impossible that there might be a counter-revolution and it was certain that if there were a counter-revolution those who had lent money to william would lose both interest and principal such was the origin of that debt which has since become the greatest prodigy that ever perplexed the sagacity and confounded the pride of statesmen and philosophers at every stage in the growth of that debt the nation has set up the same cry of anguish and despair at every stage in the growth of that debt it has been seriously asserted by wise men that bankruptcy and ruin were at hand yet still the debt went on growing and still bankruptcy and ruin were as remote as ever when the great contest with louis the fourteenth was finally terminated by the peace of utrecht the nation owed about fifty millions and that debt was considered not merely by the rude multitude not merely by fox-hunting squires and coffee-house orators but by acute and profound thinkers as an encumbrance which would permanently cripple the body politic nevertheless trade flourished wealth increased the nation became richer 
and richer. Then came the war of the Austrian succession, and the debt rose to eighty millions. Pamphleteers, historians, and orators pronounced that now, at all events, our case was desperate. Yet the signs of increasing prosperity, signs which could neither be counterfeited nor concealed, ought to have satisfied observant and reflecting men that a debt of eighty millions was less to the England which was governed by Pelham than a debt of fifty millions had been to the England which was governed by Oxford. Soon war again broke forth, and under the energetic and prodigal administration of the first William Pitt, the debt rapidly swelled to a hundred and forty millions. As soon as the first intoxication of victory was over, men of theory and men of business almost unanimously pronounced that the fatal day had now really arrived. The only statesman, indeed active or speculative, who did not share in the general delusion was Edmund Burke. David Hume, undoubtedly one of the most profound political economists of his time, declared that our madness had exceeded the madness of the Crusaders. Richard Coeur de Leon and St. Louis had not gone in the face of arithmetical demonstration. It was impossible to prove by figures that the road to paradise did not lie through the Holy Land, but it was possible to prove by figures that the road to national ruin was through the national debt. It was idle, however, now to talk about the road. We had done with the road. We had reached the goal. All was over. All the revenues of the island north of Trent and west of Reading were mortgaged. Better for us to have been conquered by Prussia or Austria than to be saddled with the interest of a hundred and forty millions. And yet this great philosopher, for such he was, had only to open his eyes and to see improvement all around him, cities increasing, cultivation extending, marts too small for the crowd of buyers and sellers, harbours insufficient to contain the shipping, artificial rivers joining the chief inland seats of industry to the chief seaports, streets better lighted, houses better furnished, richer wares exposed to sale in statelier shops, swifter carriages rolling along smoother roads. He had, indeed, only to compare the Edinburgh of his boyhood with the Edinburgh of his old age. His prediction remains to posterity, a memorable instance of the weakness from which the strongest minds are not exempt. End of section 6